You're listening to The Simply Flawsome Show, a podcast designed for you to listen, learn, and leverage. Please welcome your host, Zoe Turner. First of all, I would like to thank Rove Hotel in Dubai Marina for allowing us to have the use of their amazing venue here for this episode and for future episodes. I'm very excited to bring you today's guest. Now, what you may know about him is he started his first business at 24 as a market trader, turning over his first million by the age of 27, that's pounds. Then he started an online insurance business from study and sold it 10 years later for seven figures. He was involved in the Dubai property market for 10 years. And he bought, he then bought an Aliens letting business in his home city of Leicester and turned it into the number one selling real estate company in, the th- in three years out of 240 agents. He sold it later, a few years, a few years later for a seven-figure sum. But what you may not know about him is he moved to the UK from India at the age of 10 to join his family who already lived there and received only six years of formal education. That's right. Yeah. He made his first million using his wife's savings. Yes, I don't mind admitting that. And then lost it all in the recession. Yep. Yeah. He gave up alcohol over a year ago. That's right. Um, after years of abuse, would you say? Um, I think alcohol abused me rather than me abusing the alcohol. Okay. But yes. And he was recently diagnosed with an enlarged prostrate, prostrate and is currently undergoing investigations for pos- prostrate cancer. After selling his business, he is now using his years of experience and knowledge into helping others get started in the property game with his PPA, which is his property training and education business. So that's why I'm very excited about this interview because season three is all about bringing you inspiring individuals with a story and a message to share who can help guide you to make the right financial decisions that may help you to secure your financial future. This guy is a 10-year-old boy. He knew he wanted to be rich, but he just didn't know how. So please welcome Cam Johal to the podcast. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Thank you. What do you think of the intro? Excellent. (laughs) So Cam, as I said, the, see, the theme for season three, it's finance made easy. And as with all my episodes, there's a, a continuous underlying theme of mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like to kind of bring that into the discussion at some point. However, as much of your experience is, is in the property game and in the property market, I'd like the focus predominantly of today's podcast to be about property. Yeah, that'll be great. So, let's start with a, how would someone get started? If, you know, let's just say there's, a, you know, listeners who have never invested in property before. How would they get started step by step into investing and buying their first property? Okay. 
two things. Um, you can be a passive investor, which means you continue with your business or your job. And then the excess money that you have, rather than putting it into pooled investments, you start by investing in property. Now, there's a difference between investing in property and investing in property funds. So I'm only interested in investing physically in property itself. And very often what happens is people will say, well, you know, need a great big lump sum of money to start. That's not always the case. So there are ways of starting in the property business with, with very little money. I don't purport to the idea of um, no money down deals which are being taught in the UK at this moment in time. Um, that is absolute rubbish to me. You need money uh, to do anything. So you need a little bit of money and, you know, there are many, many strategies to start if you're based in the UK, that is. That's interesting about the no money down because um, that was actually going to be one of my questions, which is how would you structure a no money down deal? Now, you say that's something you don't um, necessarily agree with. Like, for what reason? Because as soon as you go out into the world, you, you need to register a company, open a bank account, you need traveling expenses, you need to be looking at these properties. And then if you've never, ever had anything to do with property, where do you start? You've got to go and get some education. Google and free events are very good for information, but they're very poor for implementation. So nobody's going to teach you that for free. So some money is required in order to do everything that, that you do in life. So the, the very idea of no money down, and people are now talking about no money down and saying, well, you know what, it's just a phrase and it's just a way to get you in. You know, to me, it's just a plain con to get unsuspecting people in and duping them into thinking that they can start and have a multi-million pound property business without having anything to start with. Every single idea, every single thing that you do in life needs some seed capital. So are you saying no money down deals are not genuine kind of deals? Because no money down deals are normally structured as below market value. Um, when you're talking about no money down, are, are you referring to below market value? Or do you think this is something we need to differentiate? Because... In my mind, when I talk about a no money down, no money down deal, I'm, I'm kind of like I've also got in my mind that it's a below market value. But quite often, I know investors feel that they're getting, say, a twenty-five, a property twenty-five percent below market value, but in effect, it's not. So, are you saying it's a con in in the way that it's packaged and structured to the investor? Okay, so. Two issues there, no money down deals and below market value. So whilst I was in Dubai, we, we did thousands of properties by buying and selling. And then in the estate agency business, we sold about 300 properties a year. And I never had a client come up to me and say, I'm willing to sell my property below market value. The, pe the price that you're paying is for a property in that condition, in that market, in that location. It only becomes below market value because you are going to add value to that property by either either um, refurbishing it, improving it, or knocking it down, rebuilding it, adding something to that property which will then enhance its value. So it then only then it becomes a below market value property because 
you may ha buy a property at a hundred thousand pounds, spend twenty five thousand on improvements, and then it's suddenly it's worth one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So the end game is that you pit that property up for twenty five thousand pounds below where you are selling it right now. But you added that value, and if the owner of that property had had foresight or capital, they could have done that. So I don't believe in below market value properties. You know, there's a reason that cheap properties are cheap. And that's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. And as far as no money down goes, so if you're going to set up in business, any business, and if it's going to be a partnership of some sorts that you're going to have, say, I've got no money whatsoever, the only way you can do that deal is to have a JV partner, that's joint venture, that's going to then put that money in. But if you're doing, you know, I don't know, you know, you're a racing driver or whatever it is, that's nothing to do with property whatsoever. Why would a an investor invest in you into the property business? So partnerships are about expertise and money. So if you have expertise in an area and you talk to investors and you go out there and say, listen, I know all about property and I know where to find these deals and I know how to improve them and I know how to add value you will then attract somebody that's cash rich and time poor. Yeah. And you could then do that without any money. But you'd have to spend time and effort and money, dare I say, to educate yourself. So that's a really important point to make about the joint venture. So if there's individuals out there who are maybe struggling to get a mortgage, they're struggling to get the finance, but they still want to invest in property, identifying somebody to go into it with, to go into partnership with, is the only way that they could really do that, yeah? It's key. Okay. Okay, fantastic. So again, let's take a step by step. You know, if someone wants to invest in property, so what would they need to do? First of all, would you say get a mortgage advisor? Or would you say identify the location um, or... Uh, secure your mortgage uh what what would you say is None the first step why do you want to get into property because somebody in the pub is making money uh one of your mates is doing it what's what's your why so i got into property relatively early a couple of my friends were already investing in property so we're farmers from back home in india so we're landowners so it's in our blood we've been farmers for generations so, and the other thing is that all the wealthy people of the world, 90% of the world's millionaires, are invested in property as an asset class. So, you know, if you're going to make serious money in this world, go and do what other people are doing. So, that was my why in terms of how I got into that, this business. So, what's the reason? If you're, if you're just looking at adverts on Facebook or social media and thinking, I'm going to make it, that's not good enough a reason for me to be, be, do, be doing that. So find out what it is that attracts you about property and what you think you're going to get out of it and then work out what you're going to have to put in in order to achieve your goals. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. HMOs is a term that is often used in property investing. For listeners that don't know, will you explain what the term means and the value of investing in HMOs? 
a very, very big thing in the UK right now. So it's a house in multiple occupation, which basically means um, it's defined as a household made up of two or more unrelated individuals or households that live in the same dwelling. So it's a house with a number of rooms and the people that live in it are unrelated. That's what defines HMO. The local laws vary in the UK in terms of licensing as to the number of floors, the number of individuals, whereby you need a license. Until recently, there were some areas that you know, didn't need a license at all to operate an HMO. Um, so it varies. Local authorities set their own criteria for uh, what an HMO needs to be doing and what constitute an H- uh, constitutes an HMO. So if you were... Let's go back, say, let's say we can go back like 40 years. You'd never invest in property. Mm -hmm. Yes. But you had the knowledge that you have now. Yeah. You're buying your first property, your first buy to let. Would you make it a HMO? Yes. So HMOs allow you to leverage your property. So single lets yield a certain amount of money, an HMO would yield far more than that. Because obviously you've got five individuals paying for each room. And very often um, where people made money with HMOs was that they had houses had two reception rooms downstairs, for instance. Mm-hmm. So they turned either one of them or both of them into uh, rooms that, they were, that were lettable if the kitchen had an area that was big enough that they could use as a dining room. So it, it allowed people to, to leverage uh, renting out property and so the returns were definitely double digit in some of the earlier ones that we were doing mm-hmm. so it, you know it just made sense to do that um, to aid your cash flow mm-hmm. so I guess someone looking for a HMO they'd typically be looking at the older type of houses rather than the new open plan type so the older types with different reception rooms downstairs say maybe two or three reception rooms and um you know, and I guess what they need to have is vision, yeah, because a lot of the HMOs, they're not packaged as a HMO. So the individual going around looking at the properties is going to be able to say, right, well, I can actually put a wall here. This room's big. I can make this into two rooms. I can make that lounge into a bedroom. I can do this. That bedroom's upstairs. Um Definitely, that's exactly what needs to happen. So they are older, typically three-story properties. Um, the sweet spot for an HMO is probably four to five uh, lettable rooms. Um, and of course, um, they are older properties. Then think of the demographic. So younger people starting out would be uh, living in those types of properties. Where do younger people live? They live in closer to the city centre. They often don't have their own transport. So, you know, they're starting out in life, they need some cheap accommodation. But that doesn't mean that they need poor accommodation. So I'm not not for any of that. So it, it, an older Victorian type property in a typical city centre would be ideal for conversion to an HMO. Would you say that the, um, the move over to modern living, new builds, open plan, has that affected the market for HMOs? No, we've got lots and lots of old properties in the UK that are still there for conversion. I mean, some cities now, we have, we have got something called Clause 4 that's come in to certain areas where 
the local council deems that too many properties are being converted mm-hmm. because at the end of the day councils want you know proper real families to live in these areas mm. so we've got we've got some of that that's come in recently mm-hmm. uh, where there's where there's a proliferation of HMOs uh, but generally speaking you know open plan living is more of an urban idea mm-hmm. and they tend to be more sort of upmarket properties that are intended for families so mm-hmm. totally different use mm-hmm. and you see it a lot in dubai as well um obviously because of the transitional nature of the pro- um of the the lifestyle out here you get expats coming over working here for a couple of years then leaving you do get a lot of people sharing accommodation and i know in places like barsha jbr you have a lot of the big apartments four or five bedroom apartments that are just rented on a room by room basis. Yeah, I was um, looking at a property deal in uh, South Dubai yesterday and I was quite shocked when I was told that a family would live in a studio in Dubai. But you know, hey, you know needs must and when we're starting out and certainly when I was starting out in life, there are lots of things that you can't have. You have to compromise. So, you know, if I mean Dubai is a particularly expensive place to live, especially now. You know, I was here 20 years ago and I left just before the crash. And so every year I've I've been here on holiday and I know that the cost of a holiday goes up every single mm-hmm. year. So it's an expensive place to live. You know, everybody wants to live here. Demand is, you know, through the roof. So young people coming on low salaries need to compromise. Mm-hmm. And accommodation is a huge part of their expenditure. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why they would share and 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 put up with certain conditions that they wouldn't you, normally. You get a lot of people sharing rooms as well. You get a lot of, you know, a lot of professionals. Um, you know, I mean obviously I think, you know, when they're just starting out, but you know, I know when I gave up my villa and I rented a room in a, a house full of girls i was shocked to find out that there was two girls great jobs um and they had a big room and they were just sharing that space mm-hmm. and um you know i guess for a lot of people it's just about keeping their costs down you know um they're out here to earn money and it's just trying to keep the cost down as much as possible yeah I think Zoe's a it's a whole new episode that we could do at some point. You know, in San Francisco, you're considered to be on able to qualify for welfare if you're earning less than $117,000. I think New York's $89,000. So we're seeing the gentrification of city centers, you know, old places that were cheap to rent being swept away and new high-rise blocks being built, very very high quality, but the rents are absolutely enormous. a young people starting out just cannot afford those so there's people on six figure salaries in San Francisco you know living in units with bunk beds in them mm-hmm. but that's a whole new uh, subject of the fact that we've got these these young people that are, are very qualified very well educated working um to to get themselves set up and yet the money that they earn doesn't seem to be going anywhere and you know i'm a big proponent of the fact that everybody should work for themselves mm-hmm. you know to me employment is is the the word employment is is used to be called slavery at some point and that's how it used to be so you know and it's changed now and now what's happening is that we've got especially in my own country the united kingdom 47 billion pounds is being spent on building units that will never be sold they're just for rent 
So I'm in, in London quite a lot. There's a lot of units going up now where everything's included. It's one bill that you pay for your council tax, your electricity, your internet, etc. How are those people ever going to look at buying a place of their own? Mm-hmm. So we had councils building these high-rise flats in the, in the 60s and the 70s. Now we've got private companies building exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they're now telling our youngsters that they never need to buy. That's what's going on. You know, everything's done for them. So they pay one bill, but the bill is huge. You know, these companies are making huge profits. They're not investing 47 billion pounds in the UK. Um, I believe they call it build to rent. That's the that's the, the phrase that's, that's being coined. Uh, they're not spending all this money because they think these guys are going to leave one day and, and go and buy their own house. And, and the property prices, obviously, you know, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, astronomical. You know, what I was buying terraced houses for in Leicester 25, 30 years ago, it's like 10% of what they're worth at this moment in time. Mm. So it's very important, um, you know, to get onto that property ladder, yeah. even if it's not in the city of your choice. Yeah. I remember when I first started investing in property in, in Liverpool, and I kind of wished then that maybe there was resources available, but I just didn't know it. Um, but I w- kind of wish that I had access, there was podcasts available that I could listen to that, you know, pretty much like we're doing now. Um, or probably in hindsight, it would have been good to attend a course, something similar to the courses that you run, because in a way I was going into it blind. And I remember just buying four properties pretty much in succession I didn't know what a HMO was at that point, you know, multiple occupancy. So the type of properties that I was buying was your typical like two up, two down, um, which didn't fit into that um, that, uh, that that structure with the HMO structure. In hindsight, I probably would have gone for maybe bought less properties, but you know, different type of properties with more rooms so I could have them as a multiple occupancy. So I think education is really important when it comes to starting out in business rather than going into it blind. So we talked about, you know, you asked me about getting into property and I said, you know, find out your why. So a lot of the time um, that I spend with our uh, mentees at the PPA is spent around mindset, and around treating it like a business. So had you, once you bought, I think it was five houses you, you owned at one point? I, yeah, I've literally, I owned five. I bought five in, in Liverpool, and I've literally just actually, I've got one left now. I sold four of them very, mm. very recently. Well, I actually still own two of them because it was a, um, what's the name? Uh, what do you call it? Uh, option, option agreement. Yeah, option to purchase. Yeah. yeah. You see, the thing is, all of those uh, fancy names and products have come along because people really can't afford to buy properties. Exactly. So when we were buying, when, when I was buying 25, 30 years ago, a house in Leicester, 25, 30,000 pounds, you put down 5,000 pounds in the story. There was, mm-hmm. We didn't need any of those instruments mm-hmm. because we could afford the deposits. Mm-hmm. So today I understand that de- deposits can't be afforded. So a lot of my time is taught around the fact that I think it would be easier to start in the management of property. Mm-hmm. So go and do something that I call OPP, which is other people's properties. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, you know, 
people can start with very little or no money mm -hmm. um, and get cut their teeth, as it were. Mm -hmm. So there's one thing doing things in the classroom and, and being taught, but going out there and actually doing it will teach you far more. Yeah. The problem that, you know, perhaps that you had, Zoe, was that you didn't have people around you that treated property like a business mm -hmm. and you didn't have anybody, you know, teaching you to treat it like a business right from the get-go. If you knew before you bought your first one exactly what you were going to do and how many you were going to buy and over what time. You know, we spent an afternoon at the last PPA meeting in London on business planning. Yeah. And we're planning and we're doing another afternoon in the next session yeah. on furthering those business plans. So, you know, it, it, I think if you don't go and find a teacher and a good mentor, then you just it's a it's a case of blind leading the blind, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. I think timing is also very crucial. I think I was quite lucky that um, in many ways, even though there were probably not the ideal properties, I did buy at a good time. And and I, you know, on hindsight, I probably would have flipped them. Mm. Yeah. But I didn't. I kept hold of them um, because I thought that that um, my plan at the time was to get 10 properties I wanted to, you know, have a, a million dollar property portfolio, and um, but I kind of stopped at five, and um, then I moved over to Dubai, and I actually did find it quite challenging. I found it very, very challenging living abroad and managing those those properties. Yeah, it's a difficult one. You know, about 25% of our portfolio, I think we managed about 350 properties um, in my Leicester office. So about 25% of that portfolio was what I, we used to call remote landlords. Mm -hmm. So overseas landlords or out-of-town landlords. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes a different type of management and a different style of management. So a lot of those cases, we offered guaranteed rents to those people because they couldn't be around... You know, they always had a niggle in the back of the mind when the property was empty. Is it really empty? So, you know, very often we'd say to somebody like yourself, so this is the rent we achieve uh, for that property, but we'll pay you a slightly lower rent, but we'll guarantee it. And we'll, and we'll cover minor repairs within that so that you didn't get a phone call because there was a leaking tap and it's going to cost £20. Mm. So we kind of tried to take the pain out of that. So I had a block of apartments in, Leicester, in central Leicester about 80 of them all sold to overseas investors. And we managed that for many, many years on that basis. So it gave you peace of mind. Yeah, so I guess if there's anyone listening to this who actually does live in Dubai and they're wanting to get into property investment, but they have maybe fears about how they would manage it, that would be a really good option. Look, get in touch. I'm always happy to talk. Um, and we, we discussed this a little while ago because, I, as I said, I spent 10 years in Dubai, a lot of professional people um, here, and I've helped quite a lot of people buy property in the UK to let out because one day, you know, you, you're probably going to return because as soon as your uh, contracts are over here, that's it, it's bye-bye, you go home. And when you return, um, you know, the money that you're spending now, if you save some of that and put it into property, you could build a, build yourself quite a nice buy-to-let portfolio, which you let the tenants pay your mortgage off, and you can go and enjoy that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why last year when I sold um, IPS, I didn't really have to go and do any work. You know, my wife now is retired, and I really had a choice of what it is that I wanted to do in my life. 
it's only on the back of the income that I receive from the properties that are rented out. Mm-hmm. But people worrying also about getting a buy-to-let mortgage, it's actually, um, this is my understanding, it's a lot easier to get a buy-to-let than a residential mortgage because the banks know that somebody is going to be paying that for you. Yeah, you still have to have the documentation, the three months blank bank statements, blah, blah, blah. You still need to have all of that. But it's generally a lot easier getting a buy-to-let than a residential. If you treat it like a business from day one, and if you treat it like a business from day one and you start borrowing commercially rather than trying to go to a lender that's used, uh, that's more used to doing residential stuff, absolutely. So they're looking at the strength of the security they have, which is the value of the property. Exactly as you've said, they know that there's going to be a tenant in there that's paying that rent. So I know of three or four of our major banks in the UK that didn't even used to do credit checks on their clients. But that's if you went through the commercial side of the bank rather than the residential mortgage guy that's trying to do a buy-to-let mortgage for you. So set yourself up as a company and go and talk to the bank. I'm buying this. And they'll say, you know what? We'll lend you 65 or 70% of that. And, you know, the money's there within days. So it's a different route in. I... Didn't, I did not have a single residential buy-to-let mortgage for any of my properties. And, you know, those properties and the borrowings ran into millions and millions of pounds. And uh, what happened was, so I would use my commercial bank manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I wanted to buy a property, I would ring up, say, we're buying this, we'd get it valued, and they'd say, we'll lend you X. And there was an occasion where we did a deal to buy a property for a million pounds. The bank agreed to lend about 800,000. I subsequently changed my mind. It was a huge HMO property that was let to um, very, very low income um, families. And I thought this is going to be a a real pain for me to manage. I think it was about 30 units or something like that. So I decided that wasn't something that I wanted to go into. And uh, the day I rang the bank to say, guys, I don't want this. Uh, We're not going to go ahead. Within 15 minutes, the bank manager was in my office saying, listen, you know, we've got £800,000 sanctioned. If you're not going to have this, why don't you go and buy something else? So it's an easier route in, but it's something that you learn with experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you know, I've worked in finance in Dubai for 10 years now. And what I'm finding with the market out here and, and, and people's um, investment choices and decisions is that it's changed a lot from when I first came out here. And um, when I talk about this, I am kind of referring more to kind of the expat market, um, the Western expats, particularly like a lot of British expats. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are favoring investing in property back home as opposed to investing in savings vehicles over here that carry quite large charges and offshore bonds, they're seeing it as a kind of more safer option. Look, you and I have discussed the fact that I spent six years as an IFA. I came out of that business because the only people that got rich were the fund managers. Look at the buildings they're in. You know, um, I won't name the company, but at, um, the um, Millennium 
uh, party was on seven floors of Canary Wharf, you'd be able to find who it was. They spent a million pounds on each of the floors for their New Year's Eve party, seven million pounds. And they did the seven deadly sins. And that was a turning point for me thinking, you know what, my clients are really not being best served. And I came out of that business based on that. Today, if you ask me, um, I haven't got a single pooled investment is what I call them, uh, because you have no control whatsoever. Why is it that these highly trained graduates who are experts can't beat the FTSE index? You know, index funds do just as well, if not better, with lower charges. But I think, Zoe, what we're looking at is, you know, people are very, very intelligent. They're knowledgeable. And, you know, information is easily available today. And I think what, for me, being in property gives me control. I know where that house is. It belongs to me. The deeds have my name written on it. And more importantly, you know, if you're investing in any type of pooled investment, you put in a hundred bucks, your $90 or whatever it is gets invested. They take the charges off the top. That's fine. They've got, but if you did that with property, you, that hundred bucks can be leveraged. That just needs to form 25, 30%. So you can borrow another 300 bucks on top of that. So now you've got $400 that's actually appreciating in value. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that most funds, you know, will die with you. But your property doesn't need to do that. If properly planned, you can pass that on down the generations. Look, the richest people in the world own property. It's that simple. So, you know, we come from the earth and we end up in the earth. So my belief is that every one of us should own some of it. So I've got 22 and a half year old twins now, as, as, as I said to you. So they're, they're just starting their work. They graduated last year and I've given them a task that by the time they're 25, I want them to save up a deposit so we can buy them their first investment property. And then I said to them, if, the, if we manage to do that, you'll have three by the time you're 30. So why am I doing that? I'm not advising them. I don't have a pension. I don't have any pooled investments. So... I invest all of my money in property, in business, and in gold. And that's it, and physical gold. The real stuff that you can hold, not in a fund that's controlled again. See, it's a very easy thing to do to do these paper investments because they're really easy. You, 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 know, you go into your internet banking, set up the DD, fill up some paperwork, and it's done. But when you go and buy a property, you have to go and do some work. But, you know, people, friends of mine have got 1,000 properties, 1,500 properties. You know, I came to, to England at the age of 10, couldn't speak a word of English. And these guys came much, much later than me to get married. You know, and I could tell you a dozen people now, and we probably own 10,000 properties between us. Mm. It can be done. Do you still think in today's market that it is possible to be financially independent because it's obviously very different now to how it was when we started investing in property is it possible to become financially independent through investing in property it's easier than ever information moves so fast money is so easy to get mm -hmm. and there is so much money mm -hmm. so what do you think people who've got millions and millions sitting in the bank earning zero percent interest would say so I've been here for just over a week, right? So yesterday was the end of my kind of holiday and I went to have a look at development. 
So I put some photos on Facebook last night saying, listen, I'm looking at this, 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 this. I'm looking to negotiate 10 units. I've had nine people message me overnight saying, I'd really be interested. We want to talk about this. And this is just investors that want to put something in. So if you've got the money, great, go and do it. If you don't have the money, go and get some expertise and knowledge. And then people will invest in you. Mm-hmm. Simple. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. What impact, Cam, do you think that Brexit has had on property investing? Because they say that lower house prices, um, the lower the house price, it's not a good time really to be get, getting into kind of, you know, buy to lets. What's your view on that? I'm really happy you asked me that question. So there are investors and I'll class them as trade investors and retail investors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter which market you go into, whether it's stocks and shares, whether it's gold, whether it's property. Retail investors always buy high and sell low. Trade investors always buy low and sell high. So let me explain that. So over the last two or three years, I have been selling property. So I've been selling those properties out of my portfolio that I don't think will go forward and give me the yields and the increase in value that I think I, I require. So, and I've been building up my cash reserves. So in London, for instance, the property market's been slipping for the last five or six years. And Brexit was a, was a major, major impact on that. So, you know, sitting in Dubai, you know, you, you may not know this. I think our country is in paralysis and nothing's been going on. So nothing's happening. And when nothing's happening, you, you either go backwards or you go forwards. So nothing to me means that we've, we've been going backwards. And we're sitting, the world is teetering on, on one of the biggest recessions that we, we are going to have. And it's not if, it's just when. So our economy, economy in the UK um, was uh, negative last quarter. And one more quarter will tip us into recession. Germany's following us. And, you know, we've got the U.S. president who's um, having a bit of saber rattling around the world. So, you know, we, we, are, we are on the edge right now. So if I was looking at investing in property right now, I'd hold off and I'd watch what was going to happen. So this is why at this moment in time, I advocate managing property and other people's property, whether you do it here in Dubai or whether you do it in the U.K. That gives you the opportunity to manage other people's property and you have no risk So during the last recession, I was managing other people's properties. And I can tell you something, I was making more by managing that property than most of the landlords were making. When you say you were managing the property, can you explain how an individual would go about that? Very simple. You set up a management company Um, in the UK. That's about a thousand pounds a year of regulation right now. You set up a letting company. Yeah, yeah. you call it a lettings company. You call it a management company. So if I was setting up business today, I would set that up from home, part-time, £1,000 a year of regulation, no more than about £100 a month, and I would become a specialist lettings agent in my area. And I'd market like hell to my local community, and I would become an authority in my area. Okay, that was interesting. Mm. Okay, thank you for that. My next question, and I'm pausing here because given the answer that you've just given me, I'm not sure that it's a great follow-on question, but it was, 
Which cities in the UK would you say are the hotspots for property investment? Look, there's always pockets. So we write a property report every month and that changes every single month. Um, the thing is, you can't chase that for business, right? So what you should be buying are what's going to be hot in three months, six months, nine months, a year down the road. So a lot of talk has gone on in my circles about investing in Doncaster, for instance. So people will tell me now that they're thinking of investing in Doncaster because Amazon has set up this warehouse there. And so they're going to need workers. Mm. But you know what? It's too freaking late. You needed to be invested in Doncaster before Amazon announced that because the prices would have jumped there and then. So now it's built into the market. You know, you're either on the outside or you're on the inside. And if you're on the outside, you're always late to the party. Mm -hmm. So, you know, property investing is a long-term, lifelong, generational thing. Mm -hmm. It's not something for the faint-hearted. It's not something that can be done short-term. So I started investing in property 25 years ago. You know, I bought my first house, £11,750. It was at auction. Didn't have a kitchen, didn't have a bathroom. When I went and I paid for the house and then I went to borrow money from the bank. And um, he said to me, he said, how much money do you want? I said, I want 15,000 pounds. And uh, what is that for? I said, yeah, I bought this house, I want my money back. And I want the rest to put in a kitchen and a bathroom. And he said, Cam, he said, that's a car loan, not a house, a mortgage. So go and find them. But, you know, today, I don't, God knows what it's worth. I don't know how many times we've had the value of that property back in rent. And I can name you hundreds of examples of properties that, you know, we've owned and uh, my clients have owned and my friends and relatives own that, you know, we just can't think, can't imagine as to what's happened over the last 25 years. But if you take individual years, individual blocks of four years, five years, sometimes they've dropped in value. But that didn't bother us because the only time you need to worry about house prices, especially of a property that you let out, is if you need to sell it. So if you can weather the storm of interest rates, if you can hang on to that property, that curve will be up. You know, sorry, the, the, the trend will be always be up over the time. So somebody asked me a question, would you sell so-and-so? I said, you know what? I was born on this earth to buy. My kids if they're stupid enough, they'll sell it to you. But I'm not selling anything. And that's the, that's the theory that I go by. You did mention that you were, you'd recently sold off some of your properties. Yeah, so I... I Can I'm, I ask you which type of properties that you did sell off? Okay, so we're having a, a, a real um, change in people's habits of how they shop. So, you know, we can't have a, a coffee shop on every street corner. So I had some properties which were semi-commercials, so which had a shop underneath and, and re residential units above. So they weren't in particularly good areas because they bought a long, long time ago and they were good in those times. So I've decided to dispose of those properties for two reasons. A, I think we will have difficulty letting those moving forward uh, unless we convert them into residential and I really don't convert anything these days in, in that, you know, I, I can't be asked to do those such small projects. So it's easier for me to sell those. So um, so one of the reasons was that I don't think they'll go up in price. Two is that I don't think they'll be lettable in the future. And three is I actually wanted some money 
and build up my cash reserves so that I can go into the market when we get this recession come along, which we're long overdue for and it's coming. Um, so to pick up some bargains of more desirable properties. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Would you buy a property without viewing it? Um, it's actually illegal, I believe, um, from my estate agency law for the estate agency to take an offer of a property that you haven't seen. But I have done. And the house that I told you about, um, we used to bid for property um, without seeing it and that were at auction over the phone. And we'd literally get the keys through the post. So yeah, I've done it in the past and I'd well, do I get, it today. I guess for expats living in Dubai, wanting to get into and investing in UK property, many of them may not have the opportunity to do that. Well, look, you know, it just depends where you are in the game and what stage you're at. You know, so everybody goes back, um, go and find yourself a good agent, somebody that you trust. You've got friends and relatives in there. Um, I'd advocate that you look in wherever you come from. So the city or the town that you're in. I understand that places like London may be out of reach. Then you go remote, and but find a good agent, somebody that you trust, that's gonna send you all the details. I bought- um, Or a good company, go with a good company that's gonna package these deals, find something for you, but a company that you trust. Yeah, um, I've worked uh, with a number of um, sort of um, high net worth individuals um, in, in the, um, um, the, the various countries in the Arab world. Um, that wanted to buy a property in the UK, um, and I mean, you know, multi-million pound deals, where I've sourced the property for them, we've seen everything, we've put the finance in place, and they've flown over, had a look at it, because I think it's very important to go and see it. It's a major, major decision, regardless of how much that property is, it's, it's a big decision for you. So don't let the agent tell you that it's just a minor thing, it's a huge decision for you. Fly over, you know, I used to come to Dubai on a Friday afternoon and fly back on Monday. And I used to do that 30 times a year. So it's a big deal, especially the first few. Go and see them. Thank you. Would you advise that an individual go into debt to subsidize their property? Mm, explain subsidize. I guess, um, I mean, look, I can only go by example. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of what I did once. And... Um, it's going back a long time when I first bought my properties. But I remember actually getting a bank loan to pay for the to pay for the part of the deposit. Yeah, brilliant. I bought my first house um, and the deposit was a loan from the bank. Mm. There's good debt and there's bad debt. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go into debt and buy a car or buy the latest, whatever it is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a liability. A property is an asset. Mm -hmm. So what you, the question I suppose you're asking is, would you go and borrow the deposit? Mm -hmm. is, is that right? Okay, yeah, let, let's ask that question. Would you, would you borrow the deposit? I guess it's a creative way of doing it. Look, as a businessman, I can tell you that I've maxed out my credit cards mm -hmm. when cash flow has been really tight. Mm -hmm. I've maxed out my wife's credit cards when cash flow has been really tight. I remember getting an email from American Express because I bought my own Amex card through our own merchant account. And they, about a week later, said, that's actually illegal. But you know what? I got the 50K that I needed at that time. Mm -hmm. So there, there are many things that you have to do um, in business. Um, there's good debt and there's bad debt. If you can get interest-free cash, and credit card companies do it, 
but you have to then be disciplined to pay it back. That's the, the, the key is that. So there's many, many people in the UK that will tell you that they paid for their training using a credit card. And there's companies that will get you to run up and, and ring your credit card company and ask, you, ask them if they'll put the limit up for you. I'll say, what a bunch of idiots, right? Do not be going into debt to buy courses. But having said that, if you've got a two-year interest-free credit deal, by all means, take it. Um, I financed, um, I bought cars on interest-free credit. So I bought an Audi once, £25,000. I paid for mm-hmm. it on a two-year interest-free credit deal on a credit card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to do it. Um, I know uh, I attended a, a course recently um, with quite a high-profile um, uh, person and, I um, think we both know him. <laughs> no, no, no. Somebody else, a lady. And um, it was interesting, though. Um, the company that organized for her to come into Dubai had organized with local banks. The people that couldn't afford the price of the, the course had organized with local banks for them to have a loan, which was 0%, making it more and more accessible. Look, it's a, if you're going to use that course and it's going to propel you to the next level in your life it's an investment isn't it so as i've just said to you i've got two kids that are graduated so i think their debts probably amount to about a hundred thousand pounds you know i'm not that type of father that pays for all of that kind of stuff so i want them to feel the weight of that on 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 them and have some responsibility so that's an investment for them but these two kids now got great jobs and great futures so they invested that money in the time in their education why should it be any different so i went to school for six years as you know so you don't get many qualifications at that point i couldn't speak a word of english when i rocked up here and so everything that i've learned has been after that event from people and from attending courses and buying education mm-hmm. so see it as an investment go for it when would you adv- thank you cam when would you advise the right time for a person to leave their job to go into property Okay, so I started my market trading. And by the way, market trading, I mean standing on the markets, not stock market. Because, you know, now as you were saying, you're complimenting me on my suit. People think that I went and did the stock market. I didn't, right? I bought an ex-police van and I stood the markets for two years before I got my first shop, etc., etc., etc. So what I did was I did that in my spare time. So whatever you do, don't quit your job. What you need to do is work out how much spare time you got, stop watching TV, throw the damn thing out of that window right now, because the only thing they're doing is selling to you. So if you don't have a product, you are the product. So do that in your spare time. Property doesn't need to be a full-time profession. If you don't have a product, you are the product. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you expand on that. Well, I used to sit there watching football and Formula One on a Sunday. And so, and you can spend all day on a Sunday in the UK watching um, those those particular things. Watching shite, basically, on television. Well, I thought it was great at the time. And then I saw, you know, uh, saw a, a great footballer and he was on about £300,000 a week. So I'm thinking, I'm sat here paying his wages through my subscription. So what does that actually get me? You know, people get so upset about a football team or a pop group or whatever it is. Do they really care? They don't even know who you are. 
And, you know, um, and we've got Premier League is the richest league in the world. Through what? You know, through subscription TV. Nothing else. They don't actually care about the ticket sales any longer because there's such a small part of their income. I've never looked at it that way. So ironically, the people that are moaning about how much they get paid are the ones actually, in many cases, subsidizing their income. Yeah. No, you're paying their income. You know, the TV companies can only bid these billion-dollar contracts because of the subscription. So I was sitting there all day Sunday, you know, drinking beer and eating Doritos. And whilst these guys were earning money, and those pennies that go there... So, you know, people have called it the great income reduction system and all sorts of things as far as TV is concerned. There's some great TV. There's some absolutely fantastic TV out there right now. But you know what? If you care more about what's happening to the star of your soap or your uh, film star or your football um, hero than your own life, I think there's something wrong with your life. You know, sort your life out and and the time that you have. So time is something that we all have an equal amount of, correct? 168 hours. So we need to sleep, we need to work, you know, and then there's a little bit of time that you have yourself. So why do people give that away so cheaply? So I wrote a thing whereby, you know, why do you wake up so early when you are building your boss's dreams and you get drunk on a Friday night and stay in bed all weekend when you've got a chance to build your own. And it's that simple. So use your spare time, get yourself educated, start a company, start your business part-time, don't risk anything. And when you're about 70, 80% of your income, quit your goddamn job. 70 to 80%. Yeah, so we all have- That's quite high, yeah? Well, we look, do you want to starve to death? So today, you can do all of those things online. You can do so much without being there. Mm. So go out, start your business, and get your income to, to in, from your business to be 70 to 80% of what you're currently earning. Because most people, you know, you've got rent to pay. We talked about that, right? So you've got liabilities. So, you know, you have to meet those. And there's nothing that causes more misery than finances or the lack of finances. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I had a fight with Mrs. Joel because we had too much money, correct? So, you know, 85% of relational problems are to do with finances or the lack of them, should we say. So don't get yourself into those problems. You know, I was so rich those, those, that year, 18 months when I was doing my business part-time. It enabled me to invest everything that I earned back into my business. So it built it quicker and quicker and quicker. So my job paid for my living expenses, my business was building itself. And that's what I would say, dude, right now. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Great advice. Oh, my God. Where has time gone? I knew this would be a long one because I had so many questions to ask you. And you've given me some fantastic, fantastic replies. Um, okay, so moving on now because we've spoken about property and thank you so much for for your time and 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 your responses to them. It's been very very valuable. But as you're aware, Cam, the underlying theme of all my episodes and this podcast is mental health. Mm-hmm. And um I've spoken to quite a few entrepreneurs and because mental health does seem to be uh quite common amongst people who have their own business because you know, it's such an up and down um 
you know, that the, they're experiencing such highs and such lows. Um, so can we talk about kind of yourself and, sure. and your mental health kind of over the years? I know that you've recently just stopped drinking ha- alcohol. Um, was alcohol a problem for you? Would you have called yourself you're an alcoholic? What ha- impact has that had on your relationships, both professional and personal? So alcohol is a way of life. I'm a Sikh and, you know, you come to one of our functions and you could have a bath in the stuff. Um, so it's a very community-based thing. And, um, you know, and, and men don't go to lunch. You know, you ladies go to lunch, we drink beer. And I've done business um, in bars and, and, and pubs and restaurants for probably 20 years. So, you know, and when, especially as when I was in financial services, it's very important to get the CEO of that company out of his office. And it was 99% of it, it was a he. And to meet him outside of that and have a beer was when you got your FaceTime rather than him being chased around by his secretaries and et cetera, et cetera. So that became a way of life. Um, and, and I did 10 years here, so I was away from home quite a lot. Even in the UK, I was away from quite a, uh, home quite a lot, either London or Manchester. And typically having these meetings and it was, you know, a couple of beers here and a couple of beers there. And that then, you know, became a, a way of life for me. And then, of course, at the weekends was, was my community functions because we were very family orientated people. And um, and then that sort of joyous um, buzz became something that I needed all the time. And um, and during that time, my um, home relationship, as, as you know, I've been married for over 30 years. To the same woman, by the way. 32. 32. And um, so, you know, that got, um, can I say, a little bit colder, cooler, you know, uh, and more of a coexistence. And um, so um, in 2015, I decided that I was going to give up alcohol just because of health benefits and all the rest of it. And a a year or so before that, I'd lost one of my best friends to, to alcoholism. And uh, so I did that for eight months and um, I was catching a flight to to India and came to Birmingham. I thought, "Mm, it's been eight months, I'll have a a, a beer. And and then that meant that that beer stopped me from giving up drink for another three years. And uh, so last year, my children were graduating and and, and I sat down and I wrote down what life would look like if I continue to drink and what life could look like if I stopped drinking. So at that time, my, my relations at home were not clever um, with, with both my children and uh, my other half. And it was really important to me to function properly. And so I sat down and, and my family was coming to a completely different stage in their lives. So my children were graduating and I thought they will have no more financial dependency on me. I knew they wouldn't work in my hometown. I knew they'd work in London. And I knew that they then would not need to come to, to Leicester, to their family home. Uh, my wife is financially independent. So as, as I mentioned to you, I think, uh, you know, 15 years ago, we bought our current matrimonial home. It's on her name. Um, so she can do with it what, whatever she wants. And all that I felt that needed to happen is that the kids start saying to their mom, you know, why don't you come to London? You're not working any longer. And one day, you know, she decides that I can sell this house and just move with the kids. And I, you know, thought that was a real fear. And I, you know, if you get to know me, I can't look after myself. You know, I think I'd be dead in six months if I didn't have all the people around me that actually take care of me. And my wife's one of those people. 
And so I thought, you know what, what do you actually want? And it was my son graduated on the Thursday. Um, we went to Exeter and uh, I was drinking at that time. My daughter was due to graduate, graduate in London on the Tuesday. And on Saturday, um, 21st of July was the last drink that I took. And Sunday I didn't drink. I went to my daughter's graduation. And so it's a year and a bit now. Um, and life has never been better. So I was in the process of selling my business at that time. And I didn't want to take the same old means in the next one. So, you know, because I, I was contemplating retirement at that time. And I thought, I'll have all this time. And what am I going to do? So, you know, I think alcoholism, if I wasn't an alcoholic at that time, and if I was, I was probably a very highly functioning alcoholic. And um, if I wasn't one then, I would certainly be one now, had I not stopped at that time. Mm. Um, and so what can I say? You know, I'm, I'm sat here with you in Dubai. Um, we are at a hotel. You're here with your family, your wife and your two children. That's right. That's right. So, you know, I think the kids were talking about, I think it's the, the 12th or 13th time that we're holidaying at the Jumeirah Beach Hotel. So they've kind of grown up here. But it was a, it was a, it was a, 10 days, 12 days, whatever it was for me to get absolutely slaughtered, you know, with my mates at, in, in the bar. And uh, so this was one of my last kind of challenges, if you like, to get through, because all I remember is being inebriated most of the time. You know, I'm on holiday, so it's a great excuse to start whatever time. Um, so we, we're um, in the closing few days. So obviously I, I haven't had a drink. And I can honestly say to you, it's the best holiday that I've had with my family. It's been incredible. That's amazing. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for that, Cam. Um, you've also recently found out um, you've had issues with your prostate and possible cancer. I mean, what was going through your mind when, when all that information came to light and, and how did you react to this? And and what changes have you further made to your lifestyle as a result of that? I thought, holy crap, right? I give up booze after all these years. And then they think I might die from prostate cancer. Um, but seriously, um, so that was March. Um, I was hospitalized. Um, I couldn't urinate one day. And they decided that my prostate was enlarged and had to have some further investigations. Um, but what they wanted me to do was basically wear a catheter and stay in bed for nine months. So we have the National Health Service, right? So they could do a, perform an operation which would reduce the size of my prostate and I could urinate. But I should be attached to one of these bags and sit in bed for nine months. So I convinced them that that's not what I wanted to do. And, um, uh, and we've really had a tough time of it, to be honest with you. So there was a point at which... Um, I went into hospital for a routine check a few weeks later and just like we're sat here talking now, the nurse said, uh, Cam, I think it's highly probable that you got prostate cancer. And my wife was sat outside and they didn't even give us the courtesy of calling her in. And uh, so we, we drove home in silent, uh, silence. I didn't say a word. Um, I went upstairs and just looked in the mirror and I thought, is this it? Mm. And I came downstairs and I said to uh, my wife, I said, look, I think we need to get our affairs in order. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, this is what they've said. And so it was a tough time. You know, I was setting up the PPA. Um, the kids weren't around. We decided not to tell anybody at the time. Um, so it, it wasn't easy. And I think, you know, all of a sudden my 
my bubble was burst that I'm a mortal being and I'm not going to be around forever. And uh, But, you know, it, it took me a couple of weeks to process that. And then I decided, right, I don't really care how long I've got. And I'm going to do the best I possibly can. But your perspective changes. You know, all of a sudden, you suddenly realize um, that, as I said, you're not going to be here forever. You are mortal. And, you know, do whatever you can with the amount of time that's left. So um, I decided that I was going to do absolutely the best and, uh, and, and be the best human being I could possibly be and stay as healthy as I possibly could. So, um, and I also decided at that time that I wasn't going to have any normal medical treatment. You know, I'm a very big believer in the fact that my body is designed to heal itself. So there are things that I need uh, medical assistance with, but I didn't think that cancer was one of them. And um, so I didn't say that to anybody. I can tell you, tell you that today that I made that decision. So, um, you know, I then paid for some specialist um, advice at which um, I was told that um, it was highly probable that I didn't have cancer, but there was still a possibility that I had a hugely enlarged prostate. They didn't know what caused that. And I still couldn't urinate uh, without assistance. So uh, life was tough. It was very stressful, you know. Um, and then the operation that they suggested has uh, horrid, horrid side effects. And again, you know, I made the decision not to have that. So I went down the homeopathic route of treatment. So I consulted a homeopathic doctor. And I'm a very fortunate individual. I've got some friends that have, you know, one of my best buddies owns two hospitals in the UK. So I spoke to some of the surgeons and uh, spoke to some of my friends. And, you know, the, the alarming thing is that a huge percentage of men of my age have a problem with their prostate. It naturally swells up. And the thing that really annoyed me was that it was nothing to do with alcohol. You know, you would always think that's what caused it. So it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's an age-related thing and it just gets a little bit bigger, 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 bigger. Happens in about 50% of men. So I've probably got contacts with 100 guys that are my age. Not a single one of them has ever mentioned that they're having problems. So, which is, you know, as you know, that as British men, we're supposed to suffer in silence and, and die quietly, and which is what's going on. So, you know, I haven't done anything yet because I'm not in the clear. So I'm still under investigation and observation. Hopefully by the end of the year, I'll be in the clear. But the real sort of um, turning point came, um, Zoe, when I spoke to a guy who asked me um, about caffeine. And, you know, in a roundabout way, you know, giving up alcohol has probably caused this because my caffeine intake went through the roof last year. So I started meeting people in coffee shops rather than pubs and bars, etc. And so, and, and having never really drunk caffeine, for 10, 15 years prior to that, my tea intake was very little. I never drank coffee. So my caffeine intake went through the roof and then nine months later, bang. And since that day, I gave up caffeine probably about three weeks ago. Um, and then I stopped taking the medicines that the doctors had prescribed because um, they were causing me drowsiness all day. I had no energy whatsoever. My estrogen levels were going through the roof. So started developing moves and all the weight I'd lost after I gave up alcohol, started putting it back on. But more importantly, I didn't have any energy at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I found out the effects of the medicines, I came home and I threw them in the bin and went to, and sought homeopathic help. 
And I can honestly say to you that I'm beginning to feel like my old self. Um, so I'm, I don't take any medicine right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm and every day with homeopathic medicine and uh, giving up caffeine um, and regular exercise, of course. As you know, uh, you know, we went for that 10K walk the other day. So I do 6K every morning. Um, I feel great. Fantastic. Well, I wish you all the best with that. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, let's hope that everything is going to be okay and yeah i totally agree with you about the body the mind healing the body as you know that's um an area so much for your time today we'll be actually trying for over an hour now absolute pleasure anytime thank you and i'd like to thank rope hotel again in dubai marina for allowing us to host the venue host the podcast and they're amazing Thank you.